Hello and welcome to another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak, the podcast where we talk to people way smarter than us about the most important topics in Canadian business, economics, and policy. I am your co-host, Taylor Scollin. Now, one thing I've learned uh, writing about and doing these podcasts about the economy and business is that the way our economy works is in large part a function of our institutions and laws. And in a lot of ways, the economy that we have is created by our laws. It's a creature of our laws. And that may seem obvious, uh, but I think it's easy to forget that when you're just going about your business, buying and selling things and doing your jobs, that all those little daily transactions that we're so used to happen within a larger framework. And things like how much things cost and what people get paid are to a great extent determined by that framework rather than just by quote unquote economic laws like those little supply and demand charts that we all know and love. And one of the most important pillars of that institutional framework around our economy is competition law. It's the law that deals with monopolies and cartels and also things like misleading advertising and some other consumer protections. It's meant to benefit us, but as we'll see in this episode, what that means in practice is hotly contested and has meant very different things for different people at different points in time. To really understand Canada's competition laws, which I think it's important that we do if we want to understand the economy, today on the show, we're joined by Professor Jennifer Quaid. She's an associate professor and vice dean research in the civil law section at the University of Ottawa's Faculty of Law, and she's worked on some of the most important competition cases in Canada, which we will hear about in this episode. Now, today's show is a true deep dive and is quite long. So we've split it into two parts. In this episode, part one, we get into the details of what competition law is for and how it's meant to work in Canada. And in part two next week, we'll look at how competition law uh, has actually been applied in a recent case, the Roger Shaw deal, how that played out and some of the changes that the federal government is exploring now to how our competition law works. If you have comments, feel free to email us at freelunch at readthepeak.com. And if you enjoy this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us on Free Lunch. Thank you very much for inviting me. Okay, so we're going to talk about competition law in Canada. But first, I want to get kind of a high-level perspective on why we have competition law in the first place? What is the purpose of it? And why is this not an area where we say, let's just let the market sort things out and whatever comes of that will come of it? That's a really great place to start. And I think there's a lot of conversation right now about why, why are we talking so much about competition? Why does it matter? Why should... The short answer is that although we have what can be described as a capitalist market-based system, there have always been from the beginning adjustments made to that system. Some of those adjustments are a recognition that in some types of industries or sectors, traditional markets as we imagine them don't produce the kinds of outcomes that we like. That is to say, you end up with one player uh, you end up with uneven service or very uh, poor 
response to what people need uh, because the incentive structure doesn't work. The idea behind a market, you know, going back to Adam Smith, who, by the way, always considered that regulation had a role. So people attribute to Adam Smith things that are not actually accurate. But the idea is that normally in a market where you have a set of conditions that are pretty typical, that is to say there aren't huge barriers to entry, there uh, is relatively good uh, access to information about things so people can inform themselves. And let's say the products you know, can be produced with similar cost structures or there's not huge variations in access to things like supply of inputs or whatever. You would expect that, su- that supply and demand will meet up somewhere. Now, supply and demand are on a curve. We've all seen that Economics 101 textbook. Uh, and so as the price goes up, normally we expect if there's a sort of typical uh, sensitivity of people to price that they will buy less. But in fact, demand curves are not always that nice horizontal 45 degree line, which basically says that there's a sort of monotonic increase for every dollar more, you know, there's kind of a unit less, and that's very simplified. Uh, there are times where people have no choice, no matter what the price they actually have to acquire some things and that's where you get into goods that are really necessary and you also have uh, situations where people are you know it uh, it doesn't really matter um, how little they want like that they kind of won't won't budge on the price they sort of like you know the, the opposite like you have completely elastic demand but basically the idea is if you have those sort of rough conditions the suppliers of whether it's products or services will be motivated to offer the things that people want and to offer them at the price they want or in the quality they want or whatever the characteristic is that's most important or it might be a set of characteristics. They might be motivated to offer different levels because they recognize there are different types of demand. But that's sort of the base baseline. And we do, I think, particularly in Western democracies, roughly, and there's quite a variation who have economies based on the market system, that's what we would like to happen all the time. We are faced with the fact that this isn't always what happens. And Canada is a good example of where these perfect conditions don't exist all the time. We have a very small population spread out over a very large territory. That means it's not always super profitable to offer the same service, for example, for something across the country. That's why telephone companies for a long time were monopolies because we didn't want people in Yellowknife to pay, you know, 10 times what someone in Toronto would pay. So we sort of force that evening out uh, where we consider that it's important. But we don't do that for everything, of course. And that's something where regulation comes in and can modify the incentive structure. We do this with airlines. We do this to some extent with telecom, though I know everyone is very unhappy with telecom. We do this to uh, to some extent with trend, um, with banks, and that's because we have other considerations that we want that we bring to bear on what is important to us in banks. It's security, it's you know guaranteeing deposits and so on. So we want stability. We don't want this cutthroat competition that means that there might be bankruptcies because in a real competitive market, you have to accept that some firms won't make it and other they'll be replaced by others. But we don't like that turnover in some sectors. And there are other reasons which are less noble where we simply engage in tweaking the market 
because there are interests that would like us to tweak the market. We can, mm. I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of supply management. There are reasons why that exists and you can agree or disagree with them. But that's an example where, you know, we want to produce a different outcome. We want to change the incentives from just fighting for the customer all the time. So that's the reason why we have competition law is to provide a framework around what is supposed to baseline be that markets mostly work to correct where either through various circumstances, some players end up with what we call market power, the ability to act without being constrained by the market, or where there are transactions that lead to increasing market power. Okay, that's a really helpful uh, overview of the motivation behind these regulations. Maybe we can talk a little bit about how specifically Canada has gone about trying to implement uh, this this framework. What are the laws that we're dealing with? Who are the main regulators? Just give us sort of an overview of that playing field. So in Canada, the current Competition Act dates back to 1986. And that's when there was a substantial modernization of the Act from what had existed for the previous uh, nearly 100 years. In 18, and we like to claim that we were before the Americans by one year. I'm not sure it's much of a basis for bragging rights, but in 1889. It's a very Canadian thing to do. Yes, it is. It is. Uh, <laughs> we enacted the Combines Investigation Act, which was really an entirely criminal statute that was targeting concentrations of power, but what, you know, very 19th century looking at certain sectors where there was a huge consolidation of resources and, and corporate power around certain key sectors, namely transportation, uh, that was one of the big ones, and resources. And the Americans did the same thing with the Sherman Act. So they were looking to rein in economic power. What was missing in Canada at that time, I'm not going to do a long history lesson, but what was missing in Canada is we didn't have the quite the same populist impulse that the Americans did. The Americans mm. were concerned about the connection between concentration of economic power, particularly in sort of, what, I mean, it's a funny word to use now because we think immediately of the 21st century, but these industries where there was a gatekeeping function. I mean, if you ran the railroads, you controlled the economy because that was how things got moved around. And that's why the railway barons were a particular sector that was targeted. It was also resources and oil later. Standard oil would be a major, major case, a test of the Sherman Act in 1911. But the in America, they, they really worried about concentration of economic power and what that meant for democracy. How did concentrations of economic power distort or undermine the the belief that political power was not controllable by those who were the most wealthy. Now we all can engage in a little bit of, you know, reality check. We we know there's a connection, but there was this real concern, this emergence of very powerful people who the fear was were just going to, you know, control the control democracy through their money. In Canada, I don't know that we had quite that groundswell of popular support in that way. And the the Combines Investigation Act has a very checkered and uneven history, in large part because it relied on the criminal law, which is very ineffective in this kind of area where you're really trying to prove economic harm, you're trying to prove things that are difficult to see from the outside, like mm -hmm. agreements among competitors or monopolization. But the other thing that it ran into over and above that was that we increasingly, as economics got more sophisticated, we began to understand that some of the practices that we labeled as bad 
we're not always bad, or in fact, often we're mostly not bad. Distinguishing between, you know, when is low pricing predatory and when is low pricing just low pricing because you've got a better cost structure, that started to become difficult. And using the hammer of the criminal law to go after people who, you know, based on how they choose to do business, have different outcomes, realized that was just not working. So 86, and it's a long windup. 1969 is the so-called interim report on economic policy, although it ended up being the final word prepared by the Economic Council of Canada. And that is the start of this shift that culminates in the 86 Act. So we now have a competition act. It is a little different. Uh, this is maybe more of a lawyer nerd thing, but it's a, it's a different kind of structure of law compared to the American provisions, which are quite short and very broad and very general. And their Supreme Court back in 1911 decided, yeah, it's okay, not too broad. I'm not sure that we would have been successful with a similar provision here under mm. our Supreme Court's view of what is vague and overbroad. Never mind. We have a kind of slightly more detailed, but funnily enough, it's detailed in some places and not detailed in other places. And it overlaps with some areas. So there are parts of the Competition Act that kind of overlap with the criminal code. It's a messy piece of legislation, but it is what we, it is. It's also different from Europe, where their Competition Act is inextricably linked, or their competition laws, to the project of the common European market. And so for, for them, competition law and the rules of competition that protect the common market are very much almost at a constitutional level. They're very important to that political project. It all seems quaint now because we, the European Union has been around for a long time, but I'm old enough to remember before and when it was smaller. And it, it was a, a critical component to creating that space. So Canada's Act is weird. In 1986, a lot of what used to be criminal was decriminalized. We still re retained a hard nut of criminal. That's the cartel provisions. Although in 1986, uh, it was not quite as narrow as it is now. And I can go into that later. That was problematic for a long time until they fixed those provisions in 2009. But there's a criminal section that deals with essentially illegal conspiracies to fix prices or to otherwise engage in behavior that is undermining the way markets are supposed to work, getting together to cheat the market you know, in a very simple way. Then you have um, still a set of misleading advertising provisions, and there's a criminal component and a civil component. The misleading advertising provisions will take, will be modified over the course of the 90s, but uh, we can get into that later. There are a certain number of pricing practices that are also still kept as criminal in 86. They gradually will get eliminated, most of them, because it becomes unworkable and impractical and economic evidence keeps suggesting that these are not a useful way of enforcing mm. uh, the act. Then you have two more components. Those are entirely civil enforced by uh, the competition authority, and I'll describe that in a second. So the first section deals with what are called reviewable practices. This includes things like abuse of a dominant position, tied selling, exclusive dealing. It also includes looking at whether mergers are anti-competitive, what we call kind of the substantive review of mergers. Uh, and then you, uh, you also have the merger pre-notification process, which is where mergers over a certain size involving parties of a certain size, you actually have to inform the competition authority 
that you're doing your deal and they are entitled to demand a certain number of documents to take a look and decide if there is a problem or not. And if they say, no, we don't see there's a problem, you can continue. I hasten to add, it's not an approval. It's a a decision not to object. But if they do object, then you end up in the substantive merger rules. So who are the players in competition? There is the Competition Bureau. The description of the Competition Bureau has evolved over time. Now they describe themselves as an independent law enforcement agency, which is a lot of the work that they do. They are the investigators, for example, for criminal uh, provisions, although they have to work with the prosecution service for the actual prosecution part. So they're like a police force for that. They have powers of search and seizure that are completely analogous to police procedures. They then also have a civil investigative function, which is probably the bigger part of what they do, although they do have different directorates. And part of that is to look at, for example, these tri- the, all these mergers who are notified to them. They have to take a look. They have to analyze them. Uh, so they have a they have an enforcement role. They also have, and uh, they they have a a description of this approach is sort of the compliance continuum where you have a range of ways that you promote competition. Their mandate is to promote competition, but enforcement is the pointy end. They also do a lot of education, outreach, uh, informal information with parties who are like, well, we want to do this. What do you think of this? Or we've noticed this thing. Is this something we should do or not? So they do engage and I know this sounds very jargony with stakeholders, like they are very proactive about trying to use prevention and education uh, much more than enforcement because enforcement is expensive and very targeted. But they are basically a law enforcement agency. The independent part is a little bit of a subject of discussion, not that the Bureau itself is not independent, but structurally it is still stuck in the industry department. So it is actually still under the ICED umbrella, even though it's supposed to act independently, which is becoming an irritant that people are increasingly wanting to change. Uh, And there's a bit of a movement for that. When we talk about reform to the act, we can talk about that part. So that's the Bureau. You also have a special administrative tribunal that's been created called the Competition Tribunal. And like many other federal, and they're also provincial equivalents, but, you know, tribunals, it's not a court, but it has court-like features. And the competition tribunal in particular is more court-like than some other administrative tribunals. Like Things like labor relations boards are really quite different from courts. Competition tribunal is populated by certain judges from the federal court and then what they call lay members. So the, the judges are called judicial members and the lay members are called lay members and they are drawn from a cross-section of what are considered relevant disciplines, usually economics, labor, you know, different kinds of areas, maybe uh, people who've worked in industry but not necessarily with a specific occupation. There's The idea was that you have an expert tribunal that's looking at these deals rather than just a judge or a court. The reality of that, uh, I think, many people would suggest is not has not really that experiment has not worked out well but the the goal was to have a specialized agency that decides these things at least in the first instance but only certain things go to the tribunal but notably the unilateral conduct so you know abuse of a dominant position and those practices and mergers those are the big categories that go to the tribunal the history is that actually it's really, really like a court. It uses the federal court rules, which lawyers will know are the most cumbersome and demanding rules. 
Uh, and it is very, has ended up really functioning like a court. Slow, very procedure-driven, lots of motions and things. So it resembles civil litigation a lot, which means it's not fast. And one of the objectives of of a specialized tribunal is it's supposed to be fast. The other uh, Achilles heel, I think, of the tribunal is that it has a right of appeal. Many administrative tribunals do not because the idea is you want to protect those decisions from just being reviewed by a higher authority. You still have the potential for judicial review, but usually that's much narrower. So the tribunal almost systematically, I think without exception, if there's a trial decision and it goes against one party, they appeal, the other side appeals. So it does make it very long to get to the outcome. So those are the sort of major players. The Minister of Industry sometimes uh, has some involvement, and we can talk about the fact that the amendments contemplate some involvement of the Minister of Industry as well, where the Minister of Industry can ask the commissioner to do things. Many people are queasy about that and like it less and less because the idea is we don't really want political interference, direct political interference in the way we execute economic policy. But, you know, I I think you would have to be naive to believe that any competition authority exists in a vacuum. They don't. Even the FTC and the DOJ antitrust division, they their general orientation is very much influenced by the administration. Since the Americans proceed slightly differently, their agencies use a lot of more informal shaping of how they go about their things. So their laws don't change very often, in fact, rarely change but they have enforcement guidelines or memos that they issue. And they, uh, they tend to take on the flavor of the administration. And that will sort of see, so how much they do with the laws they have is very much influenced by that climate. Even if, of course, you don't have direct political interference, okay, leaving aside Trump, in cases, that's not supposed to happen. Right. And I wouldn't suggest here that we've had direct political involvement in cases. It's just that the appearance and the potential uh, and particularly because now we're getting into an environment, and we can talk about Roger Shaw, but we're getting into an environment where there's a temptation for politicians to get involved. That That's where you worry about the structural guardrails. So that's kind of the environment that we're in right now. That's a very helpful overview. I, um, I want to pivot right into cases. And I feel like we're going to talk about some of the big ones, but I want to know from your perspective, what has been like a specific example of a case that has been like particularly interesting or testy. And I'm wondering if you could give us an example of a case that you found interesting and maybe talk a little bit about how it moved through the system that we have. I will talk about an old case because I happened to work on this case. Full full disclosure, I was a lawyer in the competition law division at the time. It goes back more than 20 years. So it may not be as well known by some. It will be known by the insiders right away. But I think it's a good illustration of some of the debates that are coming back. There are more recent cases, and I think we should talk about them. But let's let's talk first about Superior Propane. Superior Propane was a merger between the number one and number two producer or producers and distributors. They don't really make it, but the sort of distribution uh, of propane in Canada. And most people say, yeah. Barbecues, great. It's interesting. You learn a lot about an industry when you work on a case. And propane has a lot of different uses and actually is used 
quite differently in different regions, there is also a national market for some things. So it's quite interesting how it all sort of shaped out. Anyway, number one wants to buy number two. And there are not a lot of big players. And so immediately the concern was, well, you're all of a sudden going to have a very high percentage of the market. I think it was in excess of 80%, which is a threshold that starts to get people worried. You know, once you're over about 60, 65%, you know, prima facie, you're, hmm, okay, that's, that's a lot of, that's a lot of share of the market. Now, I hasten to add, and the Act says this very specifically, market share alone does not say you have market power. Because if, for example, it's easy to get into the business, what we call low barriers to entry, because there's no regulations, because you know you just need to hang out your shingle and people will come, then you might it might be deceptive to say, oh, you have 80% market share. But as soon as other people come in and say, oh, there's a buck to be made, you're, you know, you're brought back down. But propane is not a, an example of something where there are low barriers to entry, and that was something that we had to examine. Anyway, the process by whether you look whether you look at a merger and decide that you think there are problems, this case is a typical example. They had to go to the bureau and notify, "Hey, we're doing this deal," you know, because it it went over the the required thresholds. And then the bureau starts looking at it. And what they, what they do is they look at the information that's being provided about the deal. They look at, to the extent they have information from Statistics Canada or other sources about how this sector works. They then talk to customers, sometimes to competitors. They'll sort of, you know, suss out how people are reacting. And then they'll make a determination. And it was pretty clear pretty early on the Bureau had some reservations about how this, how this was going. But what do you do? How do you actually demonstrate anti-competitive effect? That's that's actually where the rubber hits the road. So in Canada, we apply an analysis which is used in other places as well, which essentially is the hypothetical monopolist or the but-for test, which says, you know, but for this transaction, what would have happened? And there, there are two ways you can look at that. One is the lessening of competition. And there you compare how it is today and how it is tomorrow, and you say, well, today is okay, and tomorrow is going to be bad. So you take competition and you lessen it. Prevention says, we may not be in a good place now, but what you're doing is preventing us from getting to a better place. So it's a little trickier to sort of, you know, that's saying there's already kind of a problem, and you're consolidating this problematic situation with your deal. And so we're going to have even less competition, even though the starting point might not have been the, the place we wanted to be. So that's the idea that you're sort of heading off at the past, the potential for something new to happen. And that is sometimes the argument that happens when a, a larger player buys a small, dynamic, you know, disturbing, you know, the kind of player that we call a disruptor comes in as like, okay, the solution is just to snap them up and take them out. Uh, so you may not have a situation where it's competitive enough yet, but you've, you've basically eliminated the chance that it might grow to that. In both cases, of course, you can't just sort of assert that and say, yeah, well, I think you have to anchor that to evidence. So that's where you have to first, and I uh, pardon the metaphor if it's too simple, you have to delineate the sandbox in which you think someone is too big or is being a bully. Like you have to say, okay, what's the space we're talking about? In antitrust analysis, we talk about the relevant market. Okay? And the relevant market is not the market square. The relevant market is has roughly two dimensions. One is the what 
what it is, whether it's a product or service or a use of something like propane was a good example. There was more than one use. And the other thing is geographically. And sometimes there is just one geographic market. It might be national, provincial or whatever, but sometimes you can actually have the delineation of what a relevant market is based on kind of what's realistic for where you can compete. And propane had both those components, actually. So think of how far you would drive to get your, you know, whatever, your uh, your cylinder of propane. Uh, and if it were cheaper, how far would you really go? You know, that's that's what they're testing is sort of how far it goes. So it was actually a pretty complicated case in that regard because we had about six or seven different end uses. So you have the barbecue, but you also have automotive, which is tends to be taxi fleets. You have industrial uses where you use forklifts, you know, indoors because that's considered safer than having gasoline, you know, so that's from a, an air quality perspective. Um, there was a national component because uh, players like Canadian Tire offered and stocked their stores like at a national level. So they they dealt with one supplier rather than individual suppliers in each city. And you also had uh, cooking and heating. And this was a particular question in the North where because there's no natural gas infrastructure and because heating oil can be very expensive, propane was actually a real source of fuel in the winter. And you can say in in those contexts, and that was actually one of the things we found, is they were pretty much stuck. Whatever the price was going to be, when it's minus 40, you have to heat your house. So there were a lot of different uses. And then we had to look at geographic markets. And so some of these, you know, had to be different. But for a lot, for a lot of things, it was quite local. And it depended on distribution routes. So how far can the truck go? Uh, how far do people go? And it's quite complicated. I'm not going to get deep into the economics for that. But you had to sort of establish what what spaces we were talking about and then which spaces created problems. So antitrust analysis forces you to really go down to the smallest relevant market and then to carefully consider where there are problems. You're not just allowed to sweep across the board and say, ah, oh, there's problems everywhere. No. And so in our case, you know, we had to drill down and say, well, okay, 67 of the 133 markets where it's used for barbecues or whatever could be anti-competitive. And then, and some of that has to do mm. with the fact that in places like Toronto, you might have had four or five suppliers. So you had Superior, you had ICG, but then you had smaller suppliers and they were actually pretty competitive and pretty good in that area. And then in the North, you might have only ICG and Superior and maybe some bit player who couldn't actually respond to the demand. So that was another sort of way that you had to think about the problem. Anyway, we got through all of that. You add to that witness testimony that talks about how, for example, Superior had a reputation for being, let's say, a bit sharp in its practices, uh, imposing fees for removing your tank if you wanted to change to another supplier, uh, having contracts that locked you in for a certain amount of time, and uh, not necessarily always being super competitive on price. And that was important because that shows um, how hard it is for people to switch. So, so barriers to entry is one thing. How is, easy is it for others to come in? But it's also how easily can customers say, you know what, I don't like you anymore. You're charging too high a price and switch. And if you have high switching costs because you impose these sunk costs, oh, you've rented the tank for me for two years. So if you switch, well, you got to pay out the full rental of that tank. 
that's a disincentive to changing. Like all of a sudden the price difference has to be very significant or you have to be really desperate to try to break those conditions. So that was one factor that we saw is that there was stickiness in some things. Clearly for barbecues, it's not the the same. You can go pick whatever tank you want, but it depended. You know, if you had a tank that you used for your hot water, if you had if you had a car that was propane powered, well, you're locked in to some extent. Then in terms of how easy it for, is it for people to come in and just, you know, break the break the stranglehold, we found that it surprisingly enough, there were not a lot of outside players who were interested in coming into the market. And that seemed, you know, unusual, but we actually had, you know, big petroleum companies who said, you know, even though we have access to the raw materials, it's not worth it for us. We've done the profitability. It's not worth it for us to get into this business. And so then you, and you know, there's a certain amount of regulatory requirements and it's also a pretty kind of domestic thing. We did have a foreign player who said we looked at it, didn't want to come in. And those all sort of play into the picture of, well, how likely is it when we have number one and number two who get together that people will still have a choice or be able to resist the temptation for price increase? Because one of the things that we look at when we're talking about, you know, is there a competition problem is it's, it's called SNP for short, but it's basically can the firm have a sustained um, non-transitory price increase over a certain period of time. The, the sort of rough rule of thumb is two years, but it's not always considered two years. Sometimes the facts, you know, require you to look a little bit further than that. But basically you're saying, if these two got together, do they have the ability to raise prices and not suffer any discipline? It's not whether they will. It's not dependent on your volunteer, you know, the, the expression of what you will or will not do, because once you've had the deal done, how are we going to go in and tell you what prices to charge? We can't, right? The whole idea of the free market is we don't set prices. That's why the discussion about groceries is very interesting. Just park that for now. In this case, there was clearly there were clearly going to be problems. Not everywhere, not in every product use, but enough. And so we got to the threshold where we had said there is a substantial lessening of competition. And it was mostly about lessening and not so much about prevention. Uh, and it's important to say substantial is a is a materiality condition. So it can't just be that you have some competition problems. They have to be substantial. They have to be important enough. We don't intervene just because there might be a few problems. It has to be enough. But we've met that threshold. Then the second part of the question, the equation comes in. And this is where Canada does have a little bit of a unique approach. Most uh, serious economists and serious uh, antitrustlers will tell you that some mergers do produce pro-competitive benefits. They, they do end up being beneficial. But sometimes what you have to do to do that is you say, yeah, there are some bad things that are going to happen, but there's going to be some compensating good things that are going to happen. What's unusual in Canada is that we broke apart those two steps. So you look at whether there are competition problems in the first step, then, and this is in a separate section of the Act, Section 96, then you have to engage in this consideration of pro-competitive effects, which is called the efficiencies defense. Efficiencies are, you know, it's a fairly broad definition and it has evolved over the years but largely you're looking at synergies you're looking at ways that costs can be rationalized you're looking at the way that volume discounts might be obtained because you're a bigger player uh, rationalizing distribution routes so you need less equipment Uh, you might be able to consolidate your head offices that was certainly the case in superior and icg's case they both had these you know nice office 
towers in Calgary and they were consolidating to somewhere near the airport, not nearly as luxurious, but cheaper. Um, and, you know, sometimes you can also rationalize your head office staff. You don't need two sets of legal advisors, two sets of auditors, all these kinds of things. But it's not just costs. It might also be that you're able to do research more effectively. You might be able to innovate because you have the capacity to do that. There can be all kinds of different categories of efficiencies. What you need to do, though, is look at those and they have to be related to the merger. So you can't just say, oh, well, we're going to get all these good things. It's incumbent on the merging parties to say, because of our merger, we will get these cost savings. We will get these efficiencies. And you have to be able to show that they are realistically going to be achieved. Because I can tell you as being a former uh, corporate lawyer, I mean, deals are sold on the idea of, of cost savings and they don't always materialize. So there yeah, is a bit of a pushback on that. Right? Yes. So there is um, there's an obligation for the parties to present that. What, um, what wouldn't become quite so clear until later is exactly how this would play out in the burden of proof. But let me just talk about the general sort of concept before I get into the legal technicalities. So on the, on the one side, you're going to have anti-competitive harm, and you first have to get through that. You first have to show there's a problem. You won't even get to efficiencies if you, if you don't show there's a problem. That's what happened in Roger Shaw. There was no demonstration of a problem. We don't need to talk about efficiencies. But in propane, we did get to that point. You look at the efficiencies, and then what the Act says is they must outweigh and offset the anti-competitive harm. And in propane, that was the first interpretation, like, sort of binding legal interpretation of what that meant. And what the court decides is that outweigh is essentially a kind of numerical comparison between the value that's attributed to the anti-competitive effect, and I'll get into how that's valued in a second, and the value of the efficiencies. So you just tally everything up. The out the offset part was to was interpreted to allow consideration of qualitative effects that can't be quantified, things that just can't be captured in numbers. This was always a little bit fuzzy. What exactly would fall into that? And we'll see later in Trevita that there's a tremendous judicial pushback on how much space is left for qualitative factors. Most of the attempts to use qualitative factors get pushed out as no, you don't need to do that, or you could have quantified it. But anyway, that's the theory. And once you've done that weighing, well, one side is bigger than the other. And if the anti-competitive side is bigger, then your merger will be the subject of an order of some kind. And if not, then there's no order that's made. I suppose I should have started with that. The goal of merger merger review is at the end of the day, you can't complain about a merger unless you can ask the tribunal to do something about it. And that's what the order is. So at the end of the day, there has to be something the court can do. So you have to ask them to do something. It could be a full block. That's never been successful. You could ask for devastatures. You could also ask for what are called behavioral remedies, which means you're asking the parties to do something or to agree to do something or agree to not do something. Those are not the preferred way of going about it because that requires monitoring for it to work. But it's in theory, those are possible. So that's kind of the range of things that happen. What happened in propane is they got to the efficiencies part, but then the tribunal found that there were more efficiencies than anti-competitive effects. They appealed. The Federal Court of Appeal sort of corrected the decision on the interpretation of how this all works, sent it back down, and uh, the court was re 
was asked to look at the efficiencies question again. They still concluded the efficiencies were bigger and, and an appeal didn't uh, go anywhere. But now I'm going to get into a tiny bit into the weeds because the efficiencies defense is front and center right now and everyone's talking about it. What happens when you look at the efficiencies defense? Interestingly enough, here I have to import things that came later. We didn't know these things in propane, but in uh, in in propane, we said, okay, so we've proven anti-competitive effect. And the understanding at the time was that if you remember how your graph looks in um, where you have the, the demand curve and the supply curve and you increase price, whatever, what happens if you have a merger that causes anti-competitive effects is you have a movement of the demand curve down such that you actually have an overall loss for the economy. Somehow there, there ends up being what's called a deadweight loss. So there isn't a perfect matchup of supply and demand the way it should be because of the way the merger will influence pricing and therefore the reaction to that through demand. That is called deadweight loss. That's basically saying the pie is smaller because of this merger, the overall economic pie is smaller. And that's a bad thing. And that is what the commissioner is expected to put a number on. What are, What is the overall kind of contraction, if you will, of economic welfare? And then the parties have to provide their efficiencies uh, quantification and say, well, but here is how much more we are going to produce because we're saving money or because we're cutting costs or whatever. The reality is if you look at that that graph, it's almost always going to be the case that the deadweight loss is smaller than, than um, the efficiencies. And so it's actually hard to succeed. And one of the things is that it's considered not to be relevant. This is a classic economic argument. It's not relevant that after the merger, they, there will be a substantial transfer of wealth from usually we call them consumers but you know the the buyers to the uh to the producers and that's because if you charge higher prices for example well they're going to be more profitable but the consumers have less economists will say it's not for us to judge who is more deserving of an extra dollar and that it's not the role of competition law and competition enforcement to ensure an equitable distribution of wealth. That is the job of the tax system and socioeconomic programs. And so, for example, in propane, the fact that people in the North might pay astronomical rates for their heating uh, is not a problem that should be addressed in directly in the merger case uh, if overall they think that efficiencies are, are going to compensate. That's something for tax and socioeconomic policy. That's something for government to deal with in another way. And many people feel that, you know, although at a macro level, that makes sense, you're not going to try to do a major redistribution of income through individual assessments of mergers. There is some sense, though, and I take the example in propane again of the North, where if the affected people are a relatively small constituency, they may not get that socioeconomic policy support that they need because they're just not big enough, that they're not a political constituency that's going to get a specific remedy for the problem caused by the merger. And so some people have said, yeah, okay, that's very nice to say that socioeconomic policy is there to redistribute income, but it has to reach a certain level of importance for it to matter 
in the po- overall political calculations that go into a budget and how we do tax policy. So there's there's a bit of discomfort for that. The other thing is that propane was significant because it allowed for, allowed for, but didn't actually result in, allowed for the possibility to consider that some of this wealth transfer was not neutral. Now, the preferred way was to consider it not, like to not allow wealth transfers to be counted, but they did create this space. And this was called the balancing weights method, uh, which was considered new. Unfortunately, it never actually really gets used. But that was that was the innovation. And that was to say, hey, sometimes maybe the extra dollar in someone else's hand does matter when you're talking about serious vulnerable populations or disadvantage. But the the general perception was still that it's better if we don't have to do that. It's better if we use what's called the total surplus method. Okay, one more nerdy point, and then I'll stop. In the US, they also take into account pro-competitive benefits, but not in a separate step. But what they apply as kind of like their baseline is they they uh, will say, at the end of the day, are consumers better off? And usually that means are consumers paying lower prices or are they you know, not going to be suff- subjected to a price increase? But it could also be, you know, price is used as a as a representation of consumer demand. So it could be that you have choice or you have quality. It doesn't necessarily mean price per se. Um, but in Canada, we've never used that where the consumer's welfare is the ultimate. Now, some people say that it's a mirage. The U.S. doesn't really apply it properly or it hasn't been applied consistently. But that has often been a point of comparison between the U.S. Mm. and Canada is that, you know, it's the same basic model, except that the U.S. has said, well, but there's a there's a hard line which is if the merger is going to make consumers worse off, then we're not going to say yes. Whereas in Canada, we just said, is the pie bigger? Who cares if 95% goes to <laughs> merging parties? The pie is bigger. So it's a, a difference of approach. But that's kind of an illustration of what happens in a, in a merger case is you have to look at what's happening. You know, what are the, what are the products and services involved in what kind of geographic markets? And then look at each one and say, where are their problems? You make a determination, is that enough to be substantial? And then you have to consider the efficiencies. And at the, at the end of that, you either make an order or you don't make an order. Okay, well, I think that's a really good place to leave part one. And in the next part of this conversation, uh, we'll talk about some specific cases, including the Roger Shaw deal and some of the changes that the federal government is planning to make uh, to the competition rules or is in the process of making right now and what the implications of those are. So, Jennifer, thank you for that excellent uh, and detailed introduction to competition law in Canada. And we'll be back next week with the second part of this episode. If you enjoyed uh, part one of this episode, please head over to your podcast player of choice and leave us a review. Really do appreciate those. Uh, and if you want more episodes, you can always find that by searching Free Lunch by the Peak wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again to Jennifer, and we will see you next week.